Welcome to Opinion Has It. I'm Elmira Bayrosley. The official results are in. The people of Britain have spoken. World stock markets lost $2 trillion today after Great Britain broke from the European Union. I do not think it would be right for me to try to be the captain that steers our country to its next destination. I will shortly leave the job that it has been the honour of my life to hold. Before I give notice that Boris Johnson is elected as the leader of the Conservative and Unionist Party. Breaking news from the UK now, of course, uh, the UK Parliament voting to pass the Brexit deal from Prime Minister Boris Johnson. It's been three and a half years in the making, but the United Kingdom is set to leave the European Union on January 31st. As the country's leaders spend the next year or more working out the details of the UK's post-Brexit relationship with the EU, it may also have to grapple with another question. Could we witness a breakup of the United Kingdom? The UK is made up of four countries or provinces, England, Wales, Scotland, and Northern Ireland. England and Wales voting to get out of the EU, and Scotland and Northern Ireland overwhelmingly pro-EU. Indeed, the issue that paralyzed Brexit more than any other since the Brexit referendum in June 2016 was the issue of the border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. So-called Irish backstop. The Irish backstop. The Irish backstop. The backstop is no good. It's dead. It's got to go. Northern Irish, who endured three decades of violent conflict between Republicans seeking to unite Ireland and Unionists committed to remaining a part of the UK, have signaled that it may be time to join the Republic of Ireland. In Scotland, which held a defeated independence referendum in 2014, the ruling Scottish National Party has already put another attempt on the table. I accept that Boris Johnson has a mandate to take England out of the European Union, but he does not have a mandate to take Scotland out of the European Union. Will the United Kingdom break up? Perhaps, says our next guest. And that might actually be a good thing. Hi, Professor Edgerton. So good to talk to you. My pleasure. Uh, How are things in London these days? David Edgerton is professor of modern British history at King's College London and the author of The Rise and Fall of the British Nation. It looks like you're in a warehouse. Really? That's my collection of books. He joins me from London. Great. So let's get started. Sure. Fantastic. So after more than three years, Brexit's finally happening. And much has been said about the reasons why so many Britons voted in June 2016 to leave the EU. And among them is economic inequality, immigration, and this last one, a national identity that no longer matches reality. And I'm interested in hearing more about that. How do leavers and remainers view Britain's place in the world? Well, the first thing to say is that Brexit hasn't happened yet. A very particular divorce negotiation has been completed, but the process of disentanglement uh, is yet to begin. So what is behind Brexit? Well, certainly, as you say, there is a certain self-identification with a United Kingdom which existed to some extent in the past. So what we have actually is a is a creation of a past with which people identify. And I think one of the key features of that is not as many people alleged 
the empire or having of an empire, but rather a, a national economy, a national society, a national politics. And these are all things that have to a substantial degree disappeared in the years since the 1970s. We have a Europeanized, indeed globalized economy. We have a party system, which is no longer uh, UK-wide. And we have uh, new divisions in British society, in particular, a division between the old and the young. And it's very striking that the, the Brexit vote and indeed the Conservative Party vote is now a vote of old people. Actually, the distribution by party of votes across the ages was reasonably constant until quite recently. when We've had this very, very marked generational divide in voting patterns. So Brexit, I think, is something, it's something new, but it's also something about history, but uh, partly an imagined history and certainly an old people's history, not a young people's history. I want to pick up on that history. When you take a look at modern British identity, it was for the most part established in the years immediately following World War II. And despite winning the war, Britain was broke and rationing remained in place and its empire was beginning to crumble. And so if you want to actually make a comparison, Western Germany was the loser of two world wars and it was quicker to recover. What did that experience do to the British psyche, and how did it influence Britain's relationship with Europe? Well, I think one can overdo the idea that the United Kingdom was was broke uh, in 1945. It it was financially embarrassed, for sure, but the economy wasn't destroyed. It had a great capacity to export, and indeed it was was very quickly back to exporting uh, a very great deal and remained, uh, the whole economy remained richer than that of Germany uh, into the late 50s, early 1960s. So one can overdo the kind of basket case. But what is absolutely the case is that later on, Germany did become a little bit richer than the, the United Kingdom. And uh, crucially, the United Kingdom wasn't the only place in, in Europe that was relatively uh, wealthy. It's, it wasn't the only place in, in Europe which was overwhelmingly uh, urban and industrial. Uh, it wasn't the only place in, in Europe to be allied with the, uh, with the United States or to have a, a strong army or, or whatever it might be. And I think that was important, uh, distressing for an older generation who'd been brought up at a time when the United Kingdom, indeed the British Empire as a whole, was without question uh, a great power. So it goes from being a great empire uh, at the beginning of the Second World War to a nation on a par with other European nations by the 1960s and 1970s. You've written that a UK identity emerged from the ashes of the British Empire and lasted only briefly until globalization and European integration began to break it apart. Why, after so many centuries of coexistence, has the idea of UK nationhood proved to be so fragile? Well, one important point to make is that the idea of a British nation, meaning the United Kingdom, radically differentiated from the rest of the world, is is, is not old. That's relatively new. And uh, for example, in, in the interwar years, 
the, the there was a, a strong identification with the British Empire as a whole. So you could be Scottish within the British Empire, you could be English within the British Empire, Irish within the British Empire, and not necessarily via the United Kingdom at all. So it's it's important not to overplay the historical uh, nature of of British identity. That's why I really see it coming out of the Second uh, World War, really after the Second World War, precisely at the moment in which the uh, British Empire is is coming to an end. So the United Kingdom develops its own nationality. Now that might seem surprising. Uh, since most nations have nationalities. But in the case of the British Empire, you had an imperial nationality, not a not a United Kingdom nationality. And that only emerges as the empire breaks up, as the Canadians and the Australians want to have their own nationality. So at that sort of level, nationhood is 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 recent. Economically, too, British nationhood is relatively recent. What distinguished the uh, the economy of the British Isles was its openness to the rest of the of the world from the 1930s and especially the 1940s. However, that economy is closed off, and you begin to get a very national conception of the economy. Something which is not at all unusual in continental Europe or indeed in the uh, in the United States but was novel in the British uh, case, and that meant that that British people started to eat British food as opposed to imported uh, food, that the manufacturers were nearly all British. So British people, and I remember this this very well, were surrounded by a very, very British world, which would not have been the case, let's say, in Edwardian London. I want to follow up on that last point. Can you walk us through the differences between Edwardian Britain and post-World War II Britain? Sure. The the very remarkable thing about um, the British Isles between the late 19th century and the, the 1950s and even into the 60s is that um, this is a place which imports half its food. I mean, no other large country in the world uh, imports uh, uh, anything like that uh, a proportion of its of, it, of its food. So, so English food came in the nineteenth century often from the United States. Uh, in the in the twentieth century, from Australia, from New Zealand, from Argentina, from Uruguay, from uh, from Canada. So, London's beef came from the River Plate. The lamb that uh, that the English consumed in very large quantities, uh, very much of it came from uh, uh, New Zealand and. Australia. And bacon and eggs, uh, unbelievably, uh, tended to come from Denmark and uh, the Netherlands. Now, there was a the great move away from this, uh, this pattern of, of, of food supply from the late 1940s. But it wasn't till the late 70s, early 1980s, that the United Kingdom became essentially self-sufficient in the kinds of foods that could be could be grown here. Uh, indeed, the United Kingdom became, and this would have astonished an Edwardian, or indeed somebody uh, living in the 1950s, the United Kingdom became an exporter of wheat and an exporter of uh, beef and of uh, and of lambs, so it became something like uh, like like Australia, or on a much smaller scale, of course, or indeed the uh, the, the United States in the in the, in the 19th century. Un- an unthinkable change, but one which happened, and, and of course radically altered 
a British relation with the rest of the world, not least actually the so-called uh, Anglosphere, because the fundamental relationship between Australia, Canada, New Zealand, and uh, the United Kingdom was that these other countries were food suppliers. That's that was their business. That was the the essence of the relationship between between these these countries. But once the United Kingdom was not importing food, those countries had to had to look uh, elsewhere, and indeed that's precisely what they what what they did. So. The there's a very particular moment in, in British history in the 70s and, and 80s when nearly everything around us is, for the first time in, in a very, very long time, uh, British. And, and indeed, it's the, the people who were uh, adults in that era who are the people who, in 2016, voted for Brexit. We'll be right back. Opinion Has It is brought to you by Foreign Policy Interrupted, an organization working to fix the gender gap in speakers and guests in major news outlets and programming. Since 2014, FPI has focused on identifying female foreign policy experts in traditionally male-dominated focus areas, such as national security, nuclear war, cybersecurity, science, and defense. Learn more at fpinterrupted.com. I want to turn to what happens now that the Brexit process has now gotten underway. And there's a lot of talk about Scotland and Northern Ireland possibly leaving the United Kingdom. If Scotland and Northern Ireland were to leave the United Kingdom and an independent Scotland would presumably seek to rejoin the EU... And Northern Ireland would rejoin by uniting with the Republic of Ireland. What happens to England and Wales? It's very remarkable that the the Welsh, the Scottish and the Northern Irish parliaments have all registered their formal opposition to the passing of the withdrawal bill. It's, it's, it's very, very clear that in, in those places there is a deeply entrenched, especially in Northern Ireland and Scotland, uh, hostility to, to Brexit. What will happen if Scotland and Northern Ireland will remain in, um, in the EU while England and Wales are out? Um, well, uh, I think the, the politics of Wales will become very uh, interesting, but I think so will the politics of England. And I, I think the breakup of the United Kingdom will be one of many, many wake-up calls that people in favour of Brexit are going to be getting over the next few years. And in essence, what they will learn is that the United Kingdom is nowhere near as, nor England indeed, nowhere near as strong as they imagine it uh, to be or, or hope it might be or hope it uh, could become. I think a key part of the politics of Brexit has been selling the public a completely unrealistic picture of the relative power of the of the United Kingdom. People talked, for example, about the United Kingdom being the fifth largest economy uh, in the world, and th that in itself would give it clout. Well, if you're the fifth largest economy in, in, in the world, you're actually not that different from the fourth, the sixth, the seventh, the eighth, the ninth, the tenth. Uh, indeed, England on its own would be something like the eighth economy uh, in, in the world. But even if you are the fifth economy in, in the world, you are pretty small fry 
by comparison with China, which is second but enormous, the United States, which is first but uh, enormous, and the EU, which is many times larger than the United Kingdom or the, or the English economy. So there's been a grotesque, really, overselling of British economic strength, indeed also of its military strength, of its uh, innovative strength as well. So lots of things will come home uh, to roost. It's going to be rather messy politics. But I think the result of coming to terms with, re with reality would be healthy for, in the end for the British body politic. Do you believe the UK should break up? I think the, the breakup of the United Kingdom in the next few years is an unfortunate uh, necessity. I think it's the only way out of this terrible mess that, uh, that Brexit has got us into. I think it's a way to uh, re-establish a, a fresh democracy in the United Kingdom and it's a way for a, a new elite to come to terms with the reality of Britain's place in the world. If those countries, the other countries in the Union, say, that's it, we're off, does that matter to you? Do you mind? If the United Kingdom finishes, the world will be finished in any case, so it doesn't matter. The world will be finished? <laughs> yes. You think so? With what's happening with things in England now, I think that we really need to have a united Ireland and just get clear of it. Where can they go? Professor Edgerton, I stumbled upon a YouGov poll that was taken back in June. And this YouGov poll indicated that 63% of Conservative Party members would not mind Scotland leaving the UK if that was the price to pay for Brexit. And that 59% would not mind if Northern Ireland broke away. But why should we think that Northern Ireland's unionists, whose entire political history has been predicated on maintaining the bond with Great Britain, are ready for unification with the South? And could Northern Ireland's troubles, which the Good Friday Agreement ended just over 20 years ago, return? Yes, it is, it is extraordinary that the Conservative and Unionist Party, as it's formally called, the membership, were more interested in Brexit than in maintaining the union. Uh, it's it's uh, an extraordinary uh, historical uh, turnaround and one that, that Boris Johnson uh, exploited by signing this uh, withdrawal agreement with the EU that uh, puts an economic border between Northern Ireland and Great Britain. Now, he denies this, but it's very, very clear that there will be a border. Indeed, the EU will insist on it and insists indeed that it, it has been agreed by, by Boris Johnson. Now, that is an extraordinary betrayal, not just of conservative tradition, but much more importantly, of the central uh, concern of the British nationalists that are the Ulster Unionist uh, Party. It's a stunning, stunning development. And I, I, I think it, there's a possibility that given this this betrayal, the, the Ulster Unionists will change their, their thinking about the union and may well want to 
become simply the representatives of a particular community uh, in Ireland rather than the advocates of uh, of a union. We shall see. I want to turn to the economic realities of Brexit. You write that Brexit was not motivated by economic nationalism or protectionism, that the Brexiteers emphasized more trade and economic opportunities beyond the EU. Is there reason to believe that a post-Brexit UK or just England will be able to fulfill such promises? One of the very many extraordinary things about Brexit has been that it involves a radical uh, change in British political economy but one that hasn't been thought through. There have been extraordinary claims for the possibilities that exist for British creativity, British entrepreneurs in a new global market. And that's the central argument behind uh, Brexit and the need to deregulate and the need to to free oneself from the shackles of a protectionist uh, uh, Europe. But... If one looks for evidence for this or indeed a reasoned argument uh, which would lead one to the conclusion that the UK would be better off or even England outside uh, the EU, you just can't find it. Indeed, it's uh, extraordinary that although the claims have been made that all sorts of trade deals were just about to be negotiated, that the United Kingdom has not even been able to roll over the uh, existing trade agreements that the UK has by virtue of being a member of the European Union. The trade agreements that that have been negotiated that will come into force uh, after we leave with, say, Korea and Japan are less good than the ones that we currently operate at through being part of the EU. And indeed, the Canadians have refused to roll over their agreements uh, because they expect to do better out of the United Kingdom's likely decision to allow goods to enter freely into into its economy. So we have an extraordinary situation where every expert knows that leaving the EU on any of the terms on offer, let, let, let alone a no deal, will be damaging to the UK economy. You mentioned that the young are very much against Brexit, and it was older Britons that pushed for it. If the UK were to break up, can a younger generation walk it back? I think the younger generation are much less attached to the United Kingdom as a political, historical, national uh, entity than older people. I think um, they would not be too distressed to see the United Kingdom break up. Indeed, it's, uh, I think it's notable that in Scotland, much of the youth is, is pro-independence. And I think for English youth, in, uh, the independence of England, uh, the breakup of, of the United Kingdom holds no particular horrors. Professor Edgerton, we end each episode by asking our guests this question. What gives you hope? Well, things change. Things are always changing, and they're changing in good ways and in bad ways. It's up to us to change things in the direction that we that we hope uh, to go. And in relation to, to Brexit, what gives me hope is that the young are massively against uh, Brexit and the insanity it, it represents. Uh, the young are much more engaged with the, with the realities of the world, and I think... Uh, 
the young only have to wait uh, a few years before, well, we, we find ourselves one way or another back fully in the European Union. Professor Edgerton, thank you. Thank you. That was David Edgerton. He is Professor of Modern British History at King's College London and the author of The Rise and Fall of the British Nation. And that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. We'd love to hear what you think about it. Please rate and review our podcast. Better yet, subscribe on your favorite listening app. Until next time, I'm Elmira Bayrosli. Opinion Has It is produced and edited by Kasha Brusalian. Special thanks to Project Syndicate editors Jonathan Stein and Rachel Dunna.